I'm Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic and today we have a special guest, a, a an educator for the, I think the first educator we've ever had um, on Talking Architecture and Design. Peter Hogg from Melbourne Polytechnic. Peter is a is an architect for I believe um, he, he he may have corrected me this about thirty years now. Um, he's uh, he's an uh, an educator. He's he knows all about the built environment. Um, he's living in Melbourne in a non lockdown suburb, which is good good to know. And um, he is a very interesting man who is going to tell us a, a few things that uh, even I didn't know. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Peter Hogg. Thank you, Branko. Okay, so um, for our non-Victorian listeners, tell me about Melbourne Polytechnic and how different is it to other schools that teach design? Yep, okay, so a bit, of, bit on uh, Melbourne Polytechnic itself. Melbourne Polytechnic is um, really a TAFE with a higher education um, sector and that's where I'm working. So we've got um, design courses that range from uh, certificates right up to bachelor degrees and pretty much everything in between, including uh, diploma of interior design, advanced diploma of building design, and, and our course, which is the Bachelor of Built Environment, which is a, an architecture degree. Uh, so it's quite um, vertically integrated, if you like. So you can come in, you don't have to necessarily come straight into, uh, if you want to do architecture, you don't have to come straight into our course. You could come in at a lower level and kind of work your way, um, work your way up. Um, so yeah, and we're located in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, I think we're really the only uh, design schools um, in that part of uh, Melbourne. There are others elsewhere, but we, we're sort of um, uh, that's that's our our territory, I suppose. Okay, so um, by the way, you're studying a um, you're doing a doctorate. I do, I do believe is that is that correct? I am. A deacon. So, can I can I ask what in, in exactly in what? Okay, so I've um as as you mentioned before, I've got um I'm, I'm still a practicing architect. I've got quite a long career in architecture, thirty years or more, depending when you want to start measuring. And I did um uh, it's at one point in my career, I did quite a lot of work in uh, indigenous housing. So I've got a, an interest in in that. So what my uh, PhD is looking at is um, the uh, what I'm calling the the traditional Aboriginal uh, buildings in uh, Victoria, in particular. So um, down in the Western District of Victoria, it's reasonably well known. There were actual uh, quite large uh, villages and uh, what we'd call permanent um, dwellings. So uh, kind of small houses. Some of them made out of stone. Others made out of other materials. So I'm looking at that and looking at um, what the evidence is for that, not just in the Western District, but right across Victoria. And um, I'm about, I'm doing this part-time because I'm running the course full-time. Uh, so I'm about a third of the way through that and it's, uh, I'm finding quite a bit of material actually. It's very, very interesting stuff. So uh, hopefully at the end of the this process, which has been a couple of years, uh, I'll be able to demonstrate that there was uh, quite a bit of um, uh, permanent settlements in, in Victoria, uh, substantial um, building 
buildings were uh, in existence here before uh, uh, colonisation and uh, maybe see how these relate to Aboriginal buildings in other parts of the country, of which there's actually um, uh, quite, a, quite a lot. It's not well known, but the, the, they, they were there. So that makes you also an archaeologist, doesn't it? I'm not quite an archaeologist, and the archaeologist would 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 very much say that uh, you know get out of our territory. But what I'm bringing to this is an architectural approach. So the archaeologist can often tell you uh, a lot about what is uh, left behind after uh, you know these buildings. Uh, most of them have been uh, long gone for 150 years or more. So there's often not a lot less left uh, behind but what the archaeologists can tell us is what might have been left behind and there's a whole lot of historical uh, documentation uh, from early explorers and some government officials people like that sometimes with drawings uh, that give us some indication of uh, what this uh, what, what, what these buildings were like and when I say buildings I'm not talking you know cathedrals and pyramids and stuff like that they're generally um, uh, what you might call houses, habitations, some slight, some larger structures. Um, so what I'm bringing is an architectural perspective to this, saying, well, how would these have worked, given what the evidence is? How would this, um, how would this have stood up? What what uh, what materials might have been used? Things like that. So we've often got um, quite good information about what these things looked like and things like that. So we've got, for instance, turf houses. Uh, and we know how big they were. We've got descriptions of them, but a turf house will not uh, on its own stand up without uh, additional support. So there must have been some sort of timber framing or something like that. So bringing all these sources together, we're tr I'm trying to uh, develop an understanding of, of what these buildings were and how they worked and uh, how they might have um, how they might have been built, and then trying to map that against uh, terrain. So in particular, as I said, the Western District, uh, there's quite good evidence there. There's a lot of um, archaeological remains. Other other parts of the country, there's not so many archaeological remains often, but that doesn't mean that people didn't build stuff there. So for instance, uh, people often think in terms of, oh, well, it's got to be built out of stone to really count as architecture. Well. My house isn't built out of stone. It's a, it's a timber house mostly, and so if you imagine what would be left of a timber house uh, if you pulled the roof off and sort of left it in the weather for 150 years, not much would be left. So, um, you know, it, it, trying to map all this stuff and, and and get an understanding of what was here is really uh, where I'm going with that. And I've got a big presentation on uh, Monday, which is a bit of a milestone for me. So. I'm, working towards that and putting in a lot of work and it's, it's, I'm getting in very deep. Uh, I've, uh, I've, I've learned a great deal and hopefully it's all, um, it's all uh, new material uh, that uh, will help inform really everyone about, about the, uh, the ongoing presence of Aboriginal people in this country, which goes back a, a very, very long way. That's something I think the, um, my magazine would love to, love to know about further down the track, but out of interest, which part of your extensive experience in, in, as an architect is useful, in, uh, most useful in day-to-day -day teaching? And dare I say, which is the least useful in terms of how, how and what you teach now? Um, okay. So I think um, architecture is a very broad uh, 
broad ranging discipline. There's a lot of things come into it. So without wanting to not answer the question, I think you know pretty much all of it is is relevant in some way. So um, architecture is not just about you know the construction technology or how it looks or anything like that. A lot of it's about how um, people live and uh, how they behave and how they interact with each other and how they use space. So I think, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty broad brush there and I think a lot of it comes into play. But, um, you know, I've got, um, depending where you sort of want to draw the line and when I started, I started uh, my first job in an architect's office was when I was uh, 16 doing work experience at school. So it's nearly 40 years ago. So I've got, I mean, you could start with the clock ticking there. So I've got 40 years experience. So I've done a whole lot of different things. Um, and, you know, just day-to-day uh, -day stuff in the office, how to get organized, how to, how to approach things, how to record things, how to um, talk to people, how to communicate with people. All of it seems to come into play one way or another in the course. Let's talk post-COVID design. There's been a fair there's been a fair bit of that um, talking about or talking about that um, across uh, the you know the media. Um, what what do you understand is post-COVID design, and um, what will it what will it involve? And um, I know this is going to be the dumb question, but when do you think it should start taking off? Well, I think we're already beginning to see um, an impact in some ways, and I think uh, look, I guess there's a there's a lot of unknowns here. If if they were to come up with a vaccine tomorrow, and that would you know, it was effective and all that sort of thing. I think there would be very, very little impact from COVID, but I don't think that's about to happen. I also think it's quite possible that this is um, not the first, well, not the last pandemic we're going to have. I think there, there, may be, there may be other things waiting in the wings. Let's hope not, but we need to be prepared. So already, I think there's been quite a lot of impacts. Um, so here, here's a question I've got. I'm, I'm working from home now. Um, I am, uh, again, even if they had a cure tomorrow or a vaccine tomorrow, would I go back to five days a week in the office? And the answer is probably not. I think there's some advantages to working from home. I think there's some problems with working from home as well. But uh, for instance, in, in future, I think a lot, a lot of people will say, well, I can work from home. I've got the technology, I can do that. And I might come in the office two or three days a week, but that's probably enough. So then the question arises, well, do we need all these office buildings that we've got all over the place? Do we need um, uh, university and educational campuses in quite the same way we've got now? Um, I mean, if you think about it, we, we've been teaching online um, all this semester and it looks like uh, next semester is going to be the same thing. No one is using the campus or very few people are using the campus that we, we're normally at out of Epi. So if this continues, do we need the campus? And therefore, do we need to um, design more buildings? Think about the amount of um, building that's been happening uh, for universities and things like that in the last few years. A lot of money's been spent. Um, 
are these buildings going to be used or are they going to be used to spend? Um, then you've got things like um, shopping. Now, uh, online shopping was already quite a big thing, but this has uh, pushed it a, a great deal. So you walk down, I was in um, Errol Street up the road before, that's a local shopping centre, hardly anyone there. Are these shops going to be um, viable? Are they going to be occupied? What's going to happen to the rents? Are people going to continue to build shopping centres? That's a big question. Cinemas, are we going to need cinemas? If the answer is yes, then we might need to think about how those cinemas work. So the cinemas might be more expensive and have less people in them. Um, cafes and things like that, same thing. Um, whether they're going to be viable or not, um, I don't know. Um, and then I think we need to look at, in particular, um, our housing stock and in particular high-rise buildings and things like that. So one of my um, big concerns about the way uh, the city has been developing in the last 10, 10 plus years is that we have been building a lot of very, very tall buildings uh, with often very, very small apartments in them. And I would like uh, everyone who doesn't live in one of these to imagine what it would be like uh, in isolation in one of these apartments. So some of them are 20 square metres or less. And think about this, if you're 40 storeys up and the only practical way of getting to the street is in a tiny elevator, which may have just had someone with COVID-19 riding in it or whatever, how often are you going to get out? So I think we need to think about this sort of thing. I, I don't, I have my problems with these sort of developments anyway, but I think when you think that through, this is not a good way to, um, to build a city. I also think that uh, we might see in future um, many more home offices built uh, either as renovations or in, in new homes. So there may well be a home office perhaps at the front of the house or something like that, because I think in future we, we're going to be working less from the office and, and a lot more remotely. So if people aren't going to use the train or public transport, maybe they are going to drive more. But if they're working from home, maybe they're going to drive less. So I think there's a big question mark over a whole lot of um, major infrastructure projects at the moment. Um, many of them are well advanced anyway, so they may as well finish them off. There's no point in half building them. But I think we're going to have to reassess a lot of this. Uh, these infrastructure projects are hugely expensive. I mean, billions and billions of dollars. And if they're not going to be used or they're not going to be fully utilised, then perhaps we should be looking at what else we can do with that money. So um, kindergarten, schools, hospitals, parks, conservation, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so I guess that, that, that we don't really know where this is going to go, but there is a whole lot of questions around what we've been doing for the last 10, 20 years. Uh, is this the way to continue and I think uh, we need to really stop and pause and give this a lot of consideration because I think the world's changed really. Okay, so let's let's trans let's transpose that on onto your teaching. Um, you recently wrote, "I like to create 
learning environments where my students can feed off each other's creativity and energy. That's not easy to mimic through online course delivery. Now, yeah. now in terms of what you just said, which is great. I mean, I, I agree with most things that you said, and I think yeah. it's uh, no one wants to go back to the office, um, and people yeah. really aren't going back to the lecture hall either. But in terms of what you just wrote um, and what I just read out, what you what you've written a while ago, how does it actually affect um, someone in your position and in, in the course that you teach? It, it, it's a it's a very good question, and I think. Um, let me say, I think that uh, a couple of things. One, one is that we we manage this transition to online teaching uh, almost overnight. It was like one week we're in class, the next week no one's in class. And so it was a very rapid um, transition and we had to really learn along the way how to do this and the only way to do it, I think, was to do it. So there has been some real advantages. So we have, um, uh, in, in particularly in some subjects, so we have, uh, as I said, quite a diverse student body. We have people who have uh, young children, for instance. And in the past, um, you know, if one of those kids was sick or something like that, that often meant that that uh, student uh, couldn't, you know, if they were the main caregiver, could not attend class and they just missed out. Uh, that doesn't happen now because if the kid's sick, mum or dad's still at home, uh, you know, attending class remotely. Mm -hmm. Now, that can be a little bit disruptive and things like that, but that's actually, I think, a positive thing and a matter of, um, if you think about it, a matter of equity. So we, we were sort of forced to do this very quickly and we did it and it, it has had some positive results. Equally, some students... Um, uh, live quite remotely. We've got a, a guy who's studying with us who lives in Shepparton, which is about a three-hour drive from Melbourne, and he doesn't really want to come to Melbourne every couple of days to, you know, for a three-hour class. So he, I think, will be um, it, will, it will work very well for him that he he's um, able to zoom in and things like that. So there are real advantages uh, in this, and there's not a lot of time lost in transit and all that sort of thing. Where it has been um not so successful i think or, or more difficult to implement is in what what i would call the creative subjects so in particular the our design studio and this is not just something that we've experienced i, I talk to other architectural educators and also to uh educators uh particularly at melbourne poly in um in music and and things like that so they're finding similar things that the uh, it, it's the sort of incidental stuff and the stuff that sort of happens on the side. So the, the, the core of the program we can deliver quite well online, but what doesn't happen so easily is that um, kind of stuff that sort of happens at the side of the stage, if you like, where people are chatting and giving each other ideas in a kind of informal manner all that informal discussion that uh, should happen, the um, what is, is very hard to define, but what, what I would call the sort of creative vibe that can happen in, in creative situations, whether it's painting, sculpture, architecture, music, whatever it is, where everyone's sort of picking up on each other's creative energy and, and it, it becomes uh, greater than the sum of its parts. So when that happens, you know you've really got something special. It's really uh, quite, 
quite um, exciting and quite um, inspiring, but it is very difficult to facilitate that in an online situation because people are not bumping into each other uh, outside of class and all that sort of thing. Now, I think there are some ways of facilitating that. So I have um, tried to do things like uh, sort of not Friday night drinks, but a sort of just a Friday night, Friday afternoon get together where, you know, okay, it's open house, come in, tell us what you think, you know, have a chat, whatever. Problem is on Zoom and things like that, really only one person can talk at a time. So if you think about uh, if you were at party or something everyone's going hammer and tongs talking to each other but uh there's not just one person talking and again it's a little bit like uh, going to a football match as opposed to watching the footy on tv or going to a concert as opposed to you know watching a podcast of it or something like that nothing wrong with watching on tv nothing wrong with it on podcast it's not quite the same thing so that that has been um tricky and it's not uh something that is confined to us but we are making the most of it and at the end of the day we've just finished all our assessments for the semester and actually the work has come up pretty well the real challenge is to try and foster that um informal interaction and i think to some degrees the students have taken this upon themselves they've got their own facebook chat rooms and stuff like that that's all good but um at the end of the day, uh, I would like to be, particularly for the design subjects, back in classroom at some point, but I think it's going to be a while yet. All the other subjects, we're doing pretty well in that. They, they, they work quite well, but it's, it's the creative side of things that um, requires an extra effort on our part. So you also wrote, and now to, to broaden this um, out a bit, that there's a push coming our way for state governments to look at provisions of lots more social housing, which is a very positive yep. thing. Um, it is something we've neglected for decades, and it's time to stop stalling and just do it. Um, can you give me an example or an idea of what will it take for this to happen, and what will it look like, and in your mind, what what state government in Australia reckon might be the first to to take up take up the challenge? Um, I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm an expert on all the state governments around Australia, but I do know they're all looking into this at the moment. So, our um, our construction industry, uh, particularly in Melbourne, I might say, but probably nationally, has very much been driven by um, uh, well, uh, let's be clear, the high population growth, uh, which largely been driven, not entirely, but largely been driven by quite high, um, historically high immigration levels. And also there's been a lot of um, kind of speculative capital flying around. And these tend to go into the sort of high rise buildings that I was talking about before. So in, in Melbourne, our, our uh, construction industry, it seems to be, uh, you know, sort of 60-storey apartment towers uh, in the inner city, uh, sort of five to eight-storey apartment blocks in the middle ring suburbs, and then very low-density development on the urban fringe. 
And at, right now, um, the sort of capital uh, flow has been almost turned off. Um, no one is coming into the country. So that whole um, population growth thing that's driven uh, our construction sector, which kind of underpins the economy, has also come to a halt or, or, or largely come to a halt. And it no doubt will resume at some point, but when, we don't know. Uh, I think it will be some time before it gets back to the where it was. So that leaves a big shortfall in the construction sector. Now, um, the federal government has given a, a little bonus to um, uh, home renovators and things like that, and that will probably do something. But uh, it seems to me that the whole um, development approach we've had for the last 10, 20 years has left a few gaping holes and things. So one is that um, we do have a lot of people living on the street, and I find that uh, totally unacceptable in a wealthy society like ours. I don't think anyone should be put in that position. Um, I think the other thing is we have very high housing prices, historically high, and this is often trumpeted as a good thing in the... Um, in the in the in the media but I, I i question that because i say well look i've got a house and my house is a lot more expensive than uh it was when i bought it but um i don't actually want to sell my house uh so what good is you know if it's worth i don't know one and a half million dollars or whatever and i sold it uh well great well i'd still have to buy another house and so that doesn't really advantage me unless i'm someone who's got 10 houses and that a different matter. So I think um, the housing um, sector has particularly not actually delivered the social outcomes that it should be delivering, which is housing affordability and housing accessibility, and also quality housing. I think we've got a lot of very substandard buildings. So I think that um, to pick up some of this shortfall, uh, the state uh, governments who are generally responsible for public housing have not really done much in this space in a long time. Um, they kind of outsourced it to community groups to some degree. Uh, I've done a bit of that work myself and I, I, I'm not against that, but I think they need to now start to look at things and what, what are they gonna be building? Then we've got a construction sector, prices are gonna drop because there's not enough work on. Uh, so now is, the time, now is a really good time to start building uh, a bit more public housing, a bit more affordable housing. And I think uh, what that might look like is uh, we're all familiar with the what we call in Melbourne, the Housing Commission Towers here from the 1960s, really. The other alternative approach was um, kind of small-scale infill housing, and I think that's actually got a lot of merit to it. Uh, there is some um, uh, public housing on the horizon at the moment, but it's, it's, it's actually largely been developer-led. So the developers have been given a number of um, blocks in the inner city. There's one down the road here, which already had existing public housing on it. They're demolishing that and they're building new public housing, but it's um, as part of a, a, essentially a private development. Now, I won't get too deep into that. I think there are some positives with that and there's some drawbacks, but uh, I think there is a lot of um, potential for this to be uh, something that we, you know, we shouldn't just do it as a, a fix for corona we should be doing it as on an ongoing basis we haven't done that for a long time i would advocate generally medium density housing i think um, what they call salt and peppering which means that you have private 
tenants mixed in with um, public tenants is a good good way to go. I think um, you need to be very mindful of who the mix of people are in public housing. So there should be families, there should be old people, there should be a, a real attempt at uh, sort of uh, facilitating community in that. Um, so I think that's that's probably what I'm thinking. I know the Housing Trust of South Australia is looking at doing some of some of this sort of thing. Uh, I'm sure that all uh, state governments uh, are going to start looking at it because really the you know the circumstances have changed. It's going to be quite cost effective to build this stuff in the in the medium term. So and we, there's a need for it. So why wouldn't we? Um, why wouldn't we push this as as one way of you know the, the all the jobkeeper things are going to be finishing soon? Uh, let let's do some public works. This is what we did in the 1930s when there was a depression, and we built a whole lot of stuff. Uh, the Sydney Sydney's underground rail loop was built in the 1930s, I believe. Great Ocean Road in Melbourne, uh, the Q Boulevard, things like that. This is the time. Um, the government has already stepped in in a big way into the economy. They're going to, you know, we, we need to ride this through and, and get something of value out of it at the end. There's no point in digging holes and filling them in again to keep people in jobs. Let's get some, some real um, public benefit out of it. Okay, so lastly, let's let's talk about, let's let's tile this in, in together. <clears throat> you said, um, you know, um, design and planning will be affected by by or post covid by or post covid however however you want to look at it you've mentioned the social distancing and isolation and you know the way we design towers and lifts in towers for example you've now spoken about um you know the the social housing and the more you know the 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 sort of the broader area around you know the way we should be developing housing rather than the way we're doing it now how does all this tie in to sustainable housing, sustainable, um, you know, building sustainable um, structures in, in, in Australia? That's a, that's a pretty good question. And I think, um, yeah, that's, it's a really critical question because, you know, housing is one of my chief concerns with a, a lot of the way things have been going. Like housing is there for the long term. When you build a tower or an apartment or whatever, it should be there 50, 100 years later. So if you get the sustainability right, that will pay dividends into the um, into the long term. So I think all these things do need to be brought together. We need to think holistically. Um, too often, I think, um, you know, uh, developers uh, are out for what they can get out of a site and things like that. I think that this needs to be really probably uh, brought together at a state and federal level. They need to start looking at this in terms of, and, and, and quickly too, not the, you know, one, one of the things that's come out of the whole COVID thing is that government can react quickly given incentive. Uh, you know, if you look back over the last 10 years, there's been a whole lot of decisions that have been delayed, 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 or, you know, uh, put in and then reversed. And this time they said, no, we, we have to do this, we have to do it now, and they've done it. And... I think pretty much all state and federal governments have been very effective and it's impressive because, you know, we didn't really think they would, but they have. So I think, um, yeah, we need to bring together uh, transport planning, urban planning, and we need to bring together detailed um, 
design planning in terms of how we build buildings, how we design apartments, and all these sort of things. Just imagine if this thing sticks around for years. Mm -hmm. How are we going to manage this? How can you manage um, at the moment? And the answer is um, we are managing, but we could manage a lot better. So I think we, you know, we need to um, kind of... Uh, take a step back and, and look at all these things. And I think a lot of what we've done in the past, we need to look at and say, is this actually the best practice? And if it's not best practice, then we need to change it. I think, you know, to, to me, um, architecture is uh, one, it's an art form, but it's also a social art form and it's a functional art form. And we need, it's a, it's a long-lasting art form. We need to look around and think, well, not just about short-term returns. We need to think in terms of long-term sustainability and long-term livability. And I think um, some of the, uh, probably some of the planning laws need to change. I also think, uh, and, you know, we have had this discussion before, I suppose, but some of the tax arrangements and incentives need to change so that we focus more on uh, both sustainability and livability aspects and less on short-term return. Um, so I, th I think that's a discussion needs to be had. And once it's in place, I think we'll find that it actually makes a lot of sense. And, you know, not every, not every country uh, approaches construction and provision of housing the way we do. And, you know, I'm not saying that we don't do quite well in this country. We do provide quality housing, but there is some of it that could be a lot better and a lot better thought through, particularly from uh, kind of COVID thing. I suppose, uh, you know, one of the things with our course at, at Melbourne Poly is we try and in integrate um, sustainability and um, that sort of, uh, I suppose, social thinking at the core of everything we do. So you don't just sort of, oh, yeah, it looks good and that'll do and, yeah, it'll, it, it's great. You've got to think about, well, how, how are people going to use this? How does it perform environmentally? Um, you know, what, what, how does this contribute to the larger picture? How does this, how, how is, how is this building part of a city, not just a standalone sort of thing that doesn't really um, engage with its, its neighbourhood, things like that? Wow, okay. You certainly did, Peter. Thank you very much. Um, you should, I think you'd be perfect for our uh, Sustainability Summit um, uh, panel at the end of this year in Melbourne, um, which may or may not be on, uh, online. It may, it may be in, in real life. We don't know yet, but um, that's on 12th of November. So if you go to sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Can you I will. I'm part of this Architects Declare movement, which is moving yes. towards trying to move towards zero um, carbon. And I've, I've long had an interest in sustainability. And some of the people who I told about my PhD, they were like, oh, I thought you'd be doing it on sustainability, or I thought you'd be doing it on transport. I was like, well, you know, maybe that's the next PhD. But um, yeah. I doubt it. I think one will be enough. But it is really critical stuff. And when you look around, you, I, I mean, I, I look at buildings all the time and think, well, you you just haven't thought about this. You've sort of ticked boxes, but you haven't really given it real consideration. I think in future, it's going to be central to everything. It, it sort of has to be, yeah. you know. Yeah. No two ways about it. Yeah. Peter Hogg from Melbourne Polytechnic. 
thank you very, very much. And we will talk again, sir. Um, you've been listening to Talking Architect. You. You've been listening to Talking Architect and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brank Amalytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.